the court, the court. morning. Please be seated. In the case of uh, His Majesty the King versus Matthew James Johnston et al. For the appellant, His Majesty the King, Mark K. Levitz K.C., Jeff Baragar K.C., and Mark Wolf. For the intervener, Director of Public Prosecutions, Elaine Reed and David Schoenbrucker. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Katie Doherty. For the respondent, Cody Ray Avisher, Dagmar Dlab, Simon R. A. Buck, and Roger P. Turkel. For the respondent, Matthew James Johnston, Brock Markland Casey, Danielle J. Son Casey, Jonathan Debarra, and Iliad Olsman. For the intervener, Criminal Lawyers Association, Ontario, Scott C. Atchison, and Sarah Sturban. Sturban, I'm sorry. For the intervener, Independent Criminal Defense Advocacy Society, Matthew Nattinson and Mika Chow. For the intervener, Criminal Trial Lawyers Association of Alberta, Graham Johnson and Stacey M. Purser. For the intervener, Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia, Tony C. Pisana and Mark. Yengar. For interveners, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Andrew Madison, Natalie V. Colas. For the in-camera hearing, for the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Mark Levitz KC, Geoff Baragar KC, and Mark Wolf. For the amicus courrier, Anil K. Kapoor, and Dana Ashtimichak. Please. <coughs> Note that there is a sealing order, publication ban, confidentiality, and restriction in this matter, pursuant to orders in the courts below and pursuant to section 486.5 of the Criminal Code. Mr. Levitz. Chief Justice, Justices, the crux of this case is about whether there is any basis of support for a theory advanced by the amici which needs to be resolved at an evidentiary hearing. The British Columbia Court of Appeal sent this case back for an evidentiary hearing mainly because, unlike the trial judge, Justice Wedge, the Court of Appeal found support for the theory. As will be apparent from our factum and what I'm about to say, the essence of our argument will have to be made in camera. 
But what I can say this with respect to our position on this issue is that the Court of Appeal made two errors regarding the theory. The first error concerns the materials that were before the judge and which she considered on the Vukulich hearing, what we call in British Columbia the Vukulich hearing, but on the summary hearing which was held. The Court of Appeal erred by interfering with the judge's exercise of her discretion. They did so by reinterpreting materials relied upon by the amici in support of the theory and making findings with respect to those materials which had been properly addressed by the judge in her sealed ruling. Put another way, the Court of Appeal improperly injected themselves on the facts and they got the facts wrong. Separate and apart from this error of reinterpreting documents that were before the judge, the Court of Appeal also erred in admitting fresh evidence adduced by the amici before the Court of Appeal to support their theory. The Court of Appeal erred in admitting the fresh evidence without assessing the fresh evidence in the context of the evidence as a whole. It seems to me, Mr. Levitz, that the real issue in this case, or at least one of the most important issues is to decide whether the first judge was right to refuse to hold a voir dire. And that's essentially what the Court of Appeal said, that uh, right. she should have uh, uh, you know, followed up with a voir dire and uh, hear the evidence, no? Yes, I mean, that is essentially what I'm, what I'm getting at here. Um, and uh, they found that uh, the judge, first of all, on the, on the uh, materials that before her, um, incorrectly um, made findings with respect to the materials. And therefore, they found that, that therefore there was a factual controversy that needed to be resolved at an evidentiary hearing. It's our position that the judge was right in the way she uh, approached the materials and, and with respect to the conclusions that she made. And therefore, the uh, Court of Appeal erred uh, with respect to their reinterpretation and thus their requirement for sending it back to an evidentiary hearing. In other words, it's our position that there were no outstanding factual controversies. The judge took the um, now respondents' allegations at their highest. She accepted the facts. She had all the information she needed in order to make, um, uh, draw, come to her conclusion that, uh, as I will indicate, that a safe proceedings was a dis disproportionate response in all the circumstances of the case. And the same thing with respect to the uh, uh, fresh evidence. The fresh evidence um, <clears throat> would not have affected the outcome either of the uh, summary hearing or, or, on, or the outcome of the uh, respondent's application for a stay. And two other issues also arise on this appeal, and that is what we call the Babo Stage 3 issue, and that is about if and when a judge on a summary hearing is permitted to engage in balancing at Stage 3 of the Babo's test. The other issue is the Vukulic threshold issue. Now that issue was not uh, an issue before uh, Justice Wedge on the summary hearing, nor was it an issue in the Court of Appeal, but it's an issue now. 
And uh, we, the appellants, we adopt the position uh, of the Director of Public Prosecutions for Canada and the Attorney General of Ontario with respect to what the threshold ought to be. Before getting into these issues, and of course I only can say, what I only can say about them in this open hearing is limited, I first want to talk about our position with respect to the availability of a stay of proceedings for serious offenses such as these that are before the court. And I also want to um, set out the context of the summary vucalage hearing to demonstrate that the respondents were not unfairly de deprived of a hearing to advance their allegations. So May I stop you though before you get going? I mean, you submit in your factum that the British Columbia Court of Appeal said that you should never engage in the balancing stage of Babos on a Vukalik hearing. Uh, you say that at paragraphs 56 of your yes. paragraph. Um, isn't that, um, uh, that doesn't capture how I read the British Columbia Court of Appeal. Didn't the British Columbia Court of Appeal say that in the circumstances of this case, i.e. when you're looking as to whether or not there is something that would infringe on, one, uh, on step one of Babos and, and um, on two, that the balancing could not be undertaken here without a completed Vukalik hearing? Not that you didn't do the balancing, but that it couldn't be done without a further factual inquiry into the extent of the potential breaches. I have a couple of responses to that point. Um, first of all, we take the view, and the Court of Appeal concluded, that the, at least with respect to the judge's open hearing, that she took the respondent's case at its highest and accepted all their facts as true. Now, I know there's an issue with respect to um, what we'll deal with in camera. I'm but, only talking about the open hearing. Right. Well, with respect to the open hearing, uh, in my respectful submission, there's, if the judge took, as the Court of Appeal found, the respondent's case at its highest, and if she accepted all the allegations as true, which she did, she had all the information that she needed in order to conduct the balancing at stage three. Or did she have all the information she needed to understand, as the British Columbia Court of Appeal said, that the kind of information that was there passed the threshold to get into a voir dire so that the extent of the breach could be established through cross-examination and other ways and not just through documentary evidence? Well, it wasn't just through documentary evidence, with the greatest respect. The um, respondents provided the judge with a great deal of allegations substantiating the misconduct in issue here. Um, the judge found it to be serious misconduct. Uh, let me give you an example. And with respect to, for example, the conditions of confinement, she made very strong findings with respect to that. And one of the issues that the uh, respondents wanted to um, deal with if they had a full evidentiary hearing was the effect that the conditions of confinement had on their clients. But the judge accepted all of that. She accepted, she said, with respect to the conditions of confinement, and, and I'm just giving you an example here, she accepted everything that the um, respondents proffered in their um, 
in their materials, including the fact that, uh, that the respondents uh, suffered mentally, they suffered physically. And but she said if that is established, it could establish a breach. She didn't say it did establish a breach and it did establish it this way. She wasn't making findings there. She said it could be sufficient under the first test in Babos. And given that, a stay could be the only, or would be the only thing. But there was no actual findings there, as, as you're kind of suggesting. Well, um, I disagree. When you read her uh, reasons as a whole, she found, for the purpose of the vocalage, uh, on stage one of Babos, that there was abusive process. She found, for the purpose of the vocalage, on stage two, that there was no alternate remedy, sure of, of a stay of proceedings. Then on stage three, having made those findings and taking, and I'm just repeating myself, the respondent's case at its highest and accepting all the facts that they put before her, and there was, you know, if you go through the materials and you read their, um, their, um, their oral submissions on the vocalage, they, they provided her with a great deal of facts to substantiate the misconduct, and she accepted all of that. And, and, and furthermore, she put to, to the uh, Respondents' Council, she says, what more, what more evidence would you uh, lead at an evidentiary hearing other than the evidence which I must accept is true? And as we point out in our reply to the Respondents' Factor, in my respectful submission, they weren't able to satisfy the judge other than providing the judge with examples which were really, um, which didn't go any further than, than the facts which they alleged. And as I said, the judge accepted all those facts, and we go through that in a reply factum, one by one, where they say, this is, you know, this is what we want to lead at an evidentiary hearing, and then I, sorry, and then I, on the other side of the, of the ledger, I say, well, she actually found those things. Yeah, but this, this, is, a, this is a very confused proceeding. Because if the judge had said, tell me what it is that, that you allege which is, constitutes the infringement, and there's a description which is given, and the judge simply says, well, that's inconsequential in the circumstances of this case. I'm not, I don't need to hear any evidence. It's, it's, it's just exaggerated. Let's move on. But she didn't do that. She had a sort of a, well, let's kind of test drive it for a bit and see how, you know, how it handles on the road. And, and we, we'll, we'll have a little bit of a kind of a, give me some of the evidence, and I'll kind of tell you what I think then. I mean, I think it's got to be yes or no. I think it's got to be, this is so inconsequential, it's a waste of time, I'm making a, a decision here, if you don't like it, go to the Court of Appeal, or bring it on. Let's, let, let's hear the evidence and let's see whether you can substantiate this and persuade me. Now, having said that, if the, if, the, uh, if, if the defense starts to wander around and get into fishing expeditions and go off on tangents and the like, of course the judge can pull, pull counsel back. But I mean, it, it, this should be, it seems to me, a kind of a really easy, quick determination at the beginning there's nothing here, it's over, or okay, you want to make your case, make your case. Instead of that, we had this kind of strange 
let's test drive the case and, 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 and see how it goes. And I think that's very problematic because it, 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 it leads to a balancing exercise when the defense has simply not had an opportunity to fully make its case. You see, Justice Rowe, that's where, with the greatest respect, I, I disagree with your description of what occurred. She, in my respectful submission, did give the respondents every opportunity to make their case. And as I, and I'm just repeating myself, she, the respondents set out their allegations in great detail. She accepted those allegations. She asked them, what other evidence would you call? In my respectful submission, they could not satisfy her that there could be, that there was other evidence that they would call other than those allegations which she had to accept and which she did accept. So she had all the information that the respondents. So, so let me kind of build on that. Um, paragraph 38 of Cody, and there's a lot of discussion, the fact is about that paragraph in the context of discussing threshold, but I want to kind of connect it to what Justice Rowe was talking about. So in Cody, the court said this, before permitting an application to proceed, right, so before we're into the voir dire, trial judge should consider whether it has a reasonable prospect of success. This may entail asking defense counsel to summarize the evidence. It anticipates eliciting the voir dire and where the summary reveals no base upon which the application can succeed dismissing it summarily. And it says, even where the application is permitted to proceed, trial judge's screening function subsists. Trial judge should not hesitate to summarily dismiss applications and requests the moment it becomes apparent they are frivolous. So the assessment of the evidence, it appears, going by Cody, occurs once you're into the voir dire, right? at the, at the, primarily with before you go into the voir dire, the question is, does it meet this, however, we want to describe this exceedingly low threshold. What stage in that process, first step, are we having a voir dire, second step, assessing the evidence, what stage was the trial judge at? She was at the stage where the respondents filed their application their application and their uh, written arguments set out in great detail what their allegations were and why mm -hmm. in their um, submission they had a basis um, for a stay of proceedings for these six murders, which they are found guilty. And, and then at that point, this is where the Crown uh, brought an application to say, look, essentially, I'm, I'm, I'm being colloquial here, but there's nothing to it. That, so that was the Crown's application. And it was at that stage where arguments were made to determine whether there was essentially any basis to the respondent's um, argument. So that sounds like there's, it sounds like there's kind of a melange of these two steps, I mean, because that, what you're discussing contemplates an assessment which occurs within the voir dire. So again, I'll ask you, I mean, where was she? Was she in the voir dire? Or was she saying, no voir dire, having assessed the evidence which Cody appears to contemplate doesn't happen until you're in the voir dire? Right. 
She was in the uh, process of dealing with the Crown's application. Well, I don't know what that means. I mean, there are two steps contemplated in Cody. Where was she? She, we brought an application and she had to make a finding with respect to that application. That application was based on the Vukalic principles and um, on the jurisprudence that existed at that, that time to determine, and again, I'm just using a phrase here, whether there was any basis in order to proceed to an evidentiary hearing. That's where she was. Clearly, there was no evidentiary hearing. At that point, the, um, the respondents responded to our application, set out their allegations. This is why we should get a, a, a hearing. We said there was no basis for that, and the judge agreed, having accepted all the facts that they alleged and, and took their case at its highest. Mr. Levitz. Yes, Mr. Levitz, are you not conflating the, standard, the applicable standard? The applicable standard for, uh, to permit an evidentiary hearing and the applicable standard on the ultimate issue uh, on the application for a stay of proceeding. Under Babo stage three? Yeah. Yes. No. Um, if I respectful submission, and I agree with pretty well all the, everybody, that the threshold for a vuclage is very low. So what does it mean for you very low? Because well, it we, seems to uh, me that you are applying the standard on the ultimate issue. The threshold for a stay of proceedings under Babos is very high. It's the clearest of cases, yeah. rarely granted. Um, it's an exceptional remedy. It ends in this case. Uh, these uh, findings of guilt would not be entered. entered. That's the end of it. Um, that's a very high standard. So, so what the, simply at this stage, the judge was required to and did do was apply the low threshold vocalage to the high threshold babos. So as I hear these questions, it almost seems like the question, I haven't been asked directly, but are you saying, are we saying that on a summary hearing, a judge can never deal with stage three of babos? And our position is, if we state in our faggot, yes, a judge in certain circumstances, including the circumstances of this case, on a summary hearing can deal with it, and that is if she has all the facts that she needs. In this case, she did because, sorry to repeat myself, but she accepted all their facts, took their case at its highest, Respondents weren't able to satisfy that there'd be any additional evidence other than the evidence that she had, that she had to Mr. accept. Mr. Levitz, what I take you to be saying actually is more uh, extreme, and that is that there are certain offences that are so serious that the balancing under Bavas can only come out one way. And, and it seems to me that that's problematic. And it's also, um, Bavos specifically says that it's the nature and extent of the state misconduct that gives rise to the need to dissociate. So it seems to me if there is a basis in the evidence, uh, a reasonable basis in the evidence for systemic misconduct, because the notion of a systemic misconduct is a conclusion or a characterization of isolated incidents, incidents of misconduct. If there is a basis of the evidence, then surely 
you need to know the extent of the misconduct to know whether the misconduct is serious enough for, this, for the court to dissociate itself from it under the third stage of BABAS. So that seems to me to be where it, the rubber hits the road. I think I'll be spending the rest of my time answering your question because there's, another, there's a number of responses. First of all, for example, with respect to the conditions of confinement, the judge did make a finding that the police misconduct dealing with the corrections officials and so on was systemic, but not ongoing, but, but it was prolonged and it was systemic. So she made that finding and she had them because she took their allegations at its highest. Uh, secondly, um, let me state what our position is. But she didn't make that finding in terms of the police misconduct allegations. Because there was no basis for it. That's why there was no basis. We're talking about in the open the, the misconduct with respect to the uh, dealing with um, the protective witnesses, because we're not obviously going to be talking about what's in camera here. She didn't make a, a finding of systemic misconduct with respect to that, because there's no basis for it. I mean, just because somebody says it's you know, systemic, that doesn't mean it is systemic if there's no basis for it. And I'll get into that more in, in the closed hearing. But, but I'd just like to... You're not normally going to have a memorandum saying this is our plan right? I mean, you're going to have isolated incidents from which you draw an inference. Right. But in this case, with respect to the misconduct that we're dealing with in the open hearing, with respect to the police misconduct, um, this isn't a situation like that. This is a case where there was an investigation done on the investigation. Because once the police misconduct, particularly dealing with the protected witnesses, um, emerged, an investigation was conducted by, the out, uh, by an outside agency, the Ontario Provincial Police, which which totally investigated that issue, and the respondents had all that information. But Justice Jamel, I just I also want to deal with, um, I don't have much time here, but I, I just want to deal with, you say that we're saying you could never get a stay of proceedings, that we're saying that in the, in the circumstances of this case, and that is not our position. The Court of Appeal, at paragraph 422, they inaccurately set out our position. The Court of Appeal stated our position as being that a stay could never be an appropriate remedy, given the seriousness of the offenses. This is not our position. Earlier in the decision, however, the Court of Appeal accurately set out our position. That's at paragraph 381, which is that a stay could never be reasonably granted for the alleged abuse of process in the circumstances of this case. These circumstances include that the system, including the courts, acted decisively to dissociate themselves from the serious misconduct. That is a significant reason why the judge in this case, notwithstanding the very serious misconduct, execution-style murders of six victims, gang murders, um, two people who had no connection to the murders. One was a gas fitter who was um, servicing a gas fireplace. Another one was the young lad who lived with his parents across the hall. It wasn't just because of, as what she described, as uh, horrendous crimes, it couldn't be more shocking. That's not the only reason. She um, also mentioned, and this is an important factor, that the system, including, uh, including the courts, acted decisively to dissociate itself from that. So that's a significant reason here why, yes, we have serious misconduct, but as the Court of Appeal um, said, I believe at um, uh, paragraph 365, the abuse of process doctrine has developed as a means 
to dissociate the courts from un unacceptable conduct. And that occurred here. But so I, I want to bring you back to, um, I think it was um, Mr. Johnston, I'm not sure, put in, in putting forward the allegations under the misconduct of the police witnesses, listed seven particular activities that they say constituted police misconduct. The trial judge only, or the hearing judge, uh, only um, said that there was some of those that gave rise to misconduct. And so um, I'm asked, uh, so there's a problem there in the sense that uh, perhaps there wasn't evidence uh, uh, at the time, but uh, these were allegations that were made. So she made certain discernments on the basis of the evidence before her about what could or could not amount to an abuse. So hold that thought, but that's a problem in terms, I think, of the process. But the question I, I have for you is that the British Columbia Court of Appeal uh, sent this back for a, an evidentiary hearing. Um, in your view, is the evidentiary hearing on all of those bases or just the ones that she found? It's a good question because the, uh, the I shouldn't say it's a good question. Well, I don't, mind being, <laughs> I, I don't mind you saying that. Erase that from the record. <laughs> it's unclear, but, um, but as we read it, once it goes back to a full evidentiary hearing, the respondents have... Um, a full chance to relitigate re um, all the issues. I would have thought that that is the answer, yes. but I wanted to understand what your position that, was. That is Thank our you. position. Is, that, is there anything else you need? Uh, no, it's, it's just that when you say she took the evidence at the highest, but she made findings against some of the allegations. It's not as if she, like in a Garofoli said, will expunge everything you say is a problem, and then is left with, uh, is there sufficient here in the ITO, which is what Vukalik comes from. Uh, this is a very different thing, which is that the third balancing stage is completely contended, um, um, dependent excuse me, on the nature of what it, how much is found, the nature of what is found, is it systemic, is it intentional, how deep did it go, all of those sorts of things. So it, it's a very different kind of uh, um, um, voir dire, perhaps, than in the Vukalik in its origin. That is true, um, but the whole purpose of a Vukalik is to determine, essentially, and, and again, I'm not going to necessarily use the Cody language, um, is there any basis? And with, with a, an abusive process, ultimately, is there any basis um, to, for the application for state proceedings? Because you have to consider, whether the, ultimately, whether there's any basis for the remedy. Okay, but let me ask you this question. When the Crown takes a Vukalic application, is the burden on the Crown, like in a summary judgment matter, to prove that there is no basis? Because we have a general case management power that regardless of whether the Crown took a Vukalic uh, kind of application here, uh, uh, this justice could have said, how is this evidence coming in? Um, and could have taken control of this, and there could have been a whole lots of conversations, as there are across courtrooms in the country and various processes. But once the Crown actually applies to dismiss, is the burden on the Crown in a summary dismissal type application? No, I would uh, suggest that the burden is on the, um, the person who makes the application, because don't forget the onus is on them. And um, 
as we point out, I think it's in our reply factum, but maybe it's in our factum itself. It's their application, in this case, a ver an application to have a state proceedings for not just serious charges, but for serious offenses for which the respondents were found guilty. You see, I don't, I don't, I, I must say, I find it very difficult to accept that because while the onus is clearly on the defense to demonstrate that the misconduct was so grievous that there should be a stay, um, what really the Crown is trying to say is you don't even get to make your case. Like, this is over now. Uh, like, down comes the guillotine and, and, and judge, you know, just throw this away. Uh, don't, even, don't even put anybody in the witness box. So it seems to me it, the Crown has got to kind of say that this is so inconsequential, it just doesn't matter, or this is a total fishing expedition. Otherwise, otherwise the defense gets, gets to make its case. Well, we basically said that, not, in not so many words. But as Justice Swat, I guess as he then was, recently said in a case called Clegg, in these type of applications, and I'm talking about you know, charter applications and so on, because the onus is on let's say the defense, they have to put the best case forward if they want an evidentiary hearing. And, and in my respectful submission, the respondents did put the best case forward because they weren't able to satisfy the judge that there was anything else. But isn't there a difference? Is, oh. Isn't there a difference between the onus to prove the, the abuse of process, to prove the, the, that they're entitled to the remedy, and the threshold about whether they're even entitled to a hearing on the issue or not. This is not about the ultimate issue. It's about whether they should have a hearing on the ultimate issue. I and agree. On the point of whether they're entitled to at least put forward their case is not the onus on the, um, on the moving party, in this case the Crown, who says they're not entitled to a hearing on this matter. Well, effectively, that's what we did. Thank you very much. Your time is up. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Chief Justice. Elaine Reed. Thank you, Justices. Summary dismissal of applications is not novel. In Cody, this court said that trial judges should use their case management powers to minimize delay by summarily dismissing charter applications that have no reasonable prospect of success. In the brief time that I have here this morning, I will first explain what we submit as the appropriate test for summary dismissal, and then look at the practical application of it. My colleague for the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, will then address the issues of it's not an all or nothing approach and deference. Importantly, this court's ruling on the standard for summary dismissal will affect a large number of routine cases in the criminal justice system. Now, while summary dismissal applications have existed for at least 30 years, as we have seen since Kutnik in 1992, there remains a wide range of approaches to its application. As referenced in paragraph 16 of our factum, we see courts using a multitude of language and tests to describe dismissal, such as doomed to failure, unmeritorious, devoid of merit, and frivolous, to name a few. Such a wide array of standards can leave parties and trial courts uncertain of when a matter should be summarily dismissed. 
And this confusion itself can lead to summary dismissal applications becoming unwieldy when participants are not certain of the correct standard. The standard which offers the greatest clarity is no reasonable prospect of success, which follows existing jurisprudence and imports an objective element. Can I, can I ask you, what claims would be screamed out by a no reasonable prospect of success standard that would not, in your view, be inappropriately permitted on a non-frivolous standard? What's the daylight between those two? Well, we say that frivolous is just really too low of a standard when we're talking about judicial economy. It's going to allow some matters to proceed that just really have no reasonable prospect of success at the beginning. And something may not be, um, sorry, could be frivolous, um, but sorry, something may not have uh, a no reasonable prospect of success, yet not be frivolous in itself, but it would still be uh, at a stage where um, we would be consuming too much judicial resources on matters that really have no merit uh, to be put before the court. So do we need to reverse course on what we said in Cody? Because in Cody, reasonable prospect of success, <laughs> uh, rather reasonable prospect of success was certainly stated with respect to the, the, the permitting an application to succeed. But then um, there is still a standard of frivolousness or frivolity, whatever you call it, that is applied once the decision is made to proceed with the hearing. Um, so, so, I mean, do you say that that is still acceptable, that once you're into the hearing, the trial judge can exercise case management powers to that standard of frivolousness? And if so, why there and not at the first step? Well, um, to the first part of your question is yes. We would say that the initial assessment that's done uh, should be based on no reasonable prospect of success, looking at the facts as pled and taking them all to be true at that time, at which point in time the trial judge will decide, will a hearing be allowed to proceed? Then at any point in time, uh, assuming a hearing will proceed, at any point in time during the process of that hearing, if it becomes clear to the trial judge that the matter is just truly frivolous, then uh, we would say that there is an obligation on the trial judge at that point in time to be proactive and to take measures into his or her hands and to stop the matter from using yet further judicial resources. So we do think that uh, still applies, but yet at the initial stage, when an applicant comes forward with an application, they have an onus to show that their application has some merit and is okay, so we, now we have a new onus that it has some merit. So we have reasonable prospect of success, it has some merit, and, and two lines down in Cody, it reveals no basis upon which the application could succeed. I mean, I guess this goes to your point that we have different, different standards, but, 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 but it doesn't really support why we pluck one particular one that's more demanding at the, uh, at the earlier stage. Right, well, we would submit uh, that the no reasonable prospect of success standard imports an objective element, courts are used to dealing with the objective element, and it sends a message to all parties in the system that they can then understand the test, and the threshold is just simply not too low. Thank um, you very much. Your time is up. Octopus. I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, Kathy Doherty. 
Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. Uh, AG Ontario intervenes on the issues surrounding uh, the view glitch or what in my province is called a Kootenik motion. Uh, as I've set out in my factum, I join my friend from the DPP on the issues she's just canvassed in terms of the uh, need for a uniform standard to be applied and some of the procedural concerns. Uh, what I want to focus on in my submissions this morning are two uh, additional points. The first is the scope of potential Kootenik motions, uh, that they don't have to be all or nothing propositions. And second, the importance of appellate deference in this area. With respect to the uh, scope of summary dismissal motions, uh, in my submission, it is a missed opportunity from a case management perspective to treat a summary dismissal motion as an on-off switch, as an all-or-nothing proposition. This court should encourage trial and motion judges to take a more nuanced approach. Trial judges have different case management tools at their disposal, uh, to do what they can to ensure the judicious adjudication of matters that come before them. One subset of that toolkit are steps that are procedural in nature, and this court flagged that uh, in Cody, but that trial judges, motion judges should be turning their minds to procedural steps that could streamline motion proceedings. The example used in Cody is, you know, proceeding on a documentary record alone. Uh, another tool would be utilizing you know, time limits for oral argument that we're all uh, familiar with. But there's a second subset of tools in that toolkit uh, that aren't procedural, but are instead substantive in nature. Uh, and this is where in my submission, the summary dismissal power, whether exercised in full or in part, has an important potential role to play in efficient case management trial judges should be encouraged to exercise their case management powers over the substance of a motion or hearing. This can be done, of, of course, by screening out summary, the, by summary dismissal, uh, meritless motions or applications, but as well in situations where the motion or trial judge is satisfied that the dispute or argument on a particular motion turns on a particular aspect of the motion or applicable legal test trial judges should be encouraged to focus the proceedings on those contentious issues, as that will promote uh, the efficient and effective use of precious court time on those core or central disputes. Turning to my second point of the importance of appellate deference in this area, a summary dismissal Ms. Doherty, motion. can I ask you, me, so, I'm sorry course. to interrupt you, I do, no, just before course, you go to your second point, yes. what, what how would applications advancing novel charter claims be treated under the under the process that you described and, and keeping in mind that you've embraced the DPP's threshold of of reasonable prospect of success shouldn't shouldn't we be encouraging trial judges not to not to jump the jump the the question i mean there there are of course countervailing uh, considerations here, Justice. And when you are in a situation where there is a true novel argument, 
then I would encourage anyone representing that applicant to put those facts fully forward to the trial judge so that they understand, you know, I might not have the same basis as somebody who's bringing an argument before you that's been heard, you know, a hundred times already today by a hundred other judges. We've, there's no sort of straight jacket here. We've got to, we've got to take the context into, a pro, into, into account. But in my submission, the idea that we need to be concerned about novel arguments isn't an argument in favor of sort of abandoning a standard or having too low a standard that in cases that are more sort of run of the mill allows applications that have no reasonable prospect of success to play through just like anything else that actually had a lot of merit to it. We can't treat those as the same in my submission. Uh, with my last 22 seconds, I want to go to this appellate deference point because in my submission, appellate deference is key to making the summary dismissal tool a functioning case management tool. Because without deference, the message to trial judges will be, it is too risky to go down this Vukulich Kutnik road. An appellate court's uh, focus must be on the reasonableness of the mm -hmm. trial judge's decision and not whether they would have come to a different one or balanced factors differently. I see my time is up. Thank you very much, yes, Chief thank Justice, you very much. for your indulgence. Dagmar Glab. Hartland and I will be addressing separate aspects of this appeal and we've divided our 30 minutes equally amongst ourselves. I will be dealing with the abuse issues and the denial of the evidentiary hearing and Mr. Martland will be dealing with the threshold hearing test. Our basic position is that the Court of Appeal did not commit any legal error in finding that an evidentiary hearing would have assisted the court in determining whether a stay of proceedings should have been granted to the defense under Babos. I would like to make three points today. The first is that the Crown has misstated the findings of the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal did not say that the trial judge was wrong to have considered stage three of Babos. Two, we had unresolved factual controversies which required an evidentiary hearing. And three, the Crown is essentially asking this court to condone egregious state misconduct and ignore the rule of law. Starting with my first point, uh, the Crown has misstated the findings of the Court of Appeal. Um, a central Crown submission is that the Court of Appeal erred in finding that the trial judge should not have considered stage three of Babos in the context of a Vukulich application. And with respect, we say that this does not flow from the decision of the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal did not say that the trial judge was wrong to have considered stage three of Babos. When we look at the key paragraphs of the Court of Appeal judgment, paragraph 404, 409, and 410, we see that um, the court recognizes that there are situations where the allegations are such that they can only be established through cross-examination. And the court goes on to say in paragraph uh, 409, which in, at the last sentence, in my submission, this is a key, key sentence, in the circumstances of this case, the appellants were, in fairness, entitled to present evidence to allow the court 
to fully weigh the relevant factors at each stage of the Babos test to determine the appropriate disposition. And in paragraph five of our factum, you'll note that we refer to what the trial judge essentially did as guesswork. She entered into this balancing of competing interests without knowing their quantities. Well, Ms. Lab, I have a question for you. Um, Mr. Levitt said that you were asked by uh, the first judge uh, about what additional evidence, what further evidence you wanted to uh, present, to introduce, uh, other than the allegation of facts which were before the judge. So what, what additional evidence? Was it uh, only cross-examinations on the facts already alleged, or you wanted to bring more evidence? There was more evidence. There were three areas of evidence that we wanted to uh, canvas, in essence. So the first area was um, the relationship between the police and the extent to which BC corrections were acting as puppets of the RCMP. And uh, so we say there were many factual controversies that remained in that regard. What were the motives of the RCMP? What were the motives of BC corrections? Did the RCMP deliberately deceive BC Corrections? Did BC Corrections know the true purpose behind the RCMP directions? All this was unresol unresolved. And um, the, the second broad area was the abusive misconduct of the police generally. Um, we say there, were, there was a misconduct of the four police officers and we said that there was a connection between this misconduct and the general moving witness strategy which, um, which Madam Justice Wedge rejected that connection, but we, you know, that was a submission we made. Um, and we wanted to explore who knew about the misconduct of the police officers, how high up did it go, when did, for example, uh, Superintendent Robin, he was one of the key players, learn about the misconduct, and what, what did he do about it? All this was unresolved. And then the third broad area were the uh, conditions of con and their impact on our client. Um, we wanted to call expert evidence on that. Uh, Madam Justice Wedge found that the uh, impact was a continuing one, so in our submission, uh, this was an open question still for an well, expert. At, on, on that issue, I, when you look at uh, paragraph 122 of her judgment, she says that there is certainly a basis to conclude that state conduct in relation to the applicant's conditions of confinement was offensive to notions of fair play and decency and an abuse of process. So it seems to me that uh, she considers and she considered all those elements, no? Uh, uh, I, with respect, I disagree because um, she did not have before her all that evidence. What she accepted was um, the uh, statements made by Mr. Justice McEwen in his judgment. And let's not forget that his judgment was limited to a uh, answer to the habeas corpus application against BC Corrections. The RCMP were not a party, so he did not address, he did not make any findings against the RCMP. Um, and Madam Justice Wedge did not, uh, we were asking for an order against the RCMP that there were breaches of the charter by the RCMP. She did not make any such orders or did not even mention that. And but when, when she says that there was an abusive process, is, is that, that enough? That's that not enough? enough because no? it, 
the extent of the abusive process is the issue at the third stage of Babos. It's not enough to just weigh an abusive process in the abstract sense against the offenses, which were the six, for, six counts of first-degree murder. And we, we have one side of the equation, and on the other side, all we know is that there's an abusive process. But surely to engage in a proper and fair balancing, we need to know the extent of that of that abuse and its impact on the administration of justice. But I guess, I guess over here, yeah. it was sufficient for the first step in Babos, in the residual. So to that extent, she makes the finding. I think your point is that there's a separate finding, a separate assessment that goes on at the third step. That's correct. And, and any balancing must be fair. Um, and in the current what happened here was was that the balancing was conducted on incomplete information. Yeah, I was just about to say it's not a question of fairness; it's a question of informed balancing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's right. it was incomplete. Right. So, um, and and um, it's notable in my submission that the trial judge did not address this additional evidence that we wanted to elicit in cross examination. It's not. It, there's nowhere in her reasons where she addresses this now. Um, in our uh, joint condensed book, we have provided a more fulsome response on this, on this unresolved factual controversies. Um, we've included uh, this, the factum where we um, set out in some detail at paragraphs 53 to 55 um, all the uh, points that we made to Madam Justice Wedge uh, that, about the additional evidence we wanted to call and also the transcript of submissions on November 3rd, where Madam Justice Wedge specifically asked me about what other evidence I, we would call if we had an evidentiary hearing. And um, at tab seven, we've reproduced this, and you will see that extensive submissions were made on this point, and that um, m most of these were not addressed in, in Madam, Justice's, Madam Justice Wedge's decision. Ms. Lab, um, while a criminal trial obviously isn't a commission of inquiry, I wonder whether the fact that uh, Vukalik is apply being applied in the specific context here of a claim of abusive process, that there isn't also a compelling public interest in knowing what happened and the extent of what happened, quite apart from the balancing. It seems to me that that may be incorporated into the idea of balancing and assessing the degree of seriousness, but quite apart from that, even if the stay is ultimately dismissed, it seems to me that that is a relevant factor for the, for the public to know what happened. Absolutely, and, and in my submission, a contextual analysis always has to be taken when considering Vukalic. And what is the context here? It's an abuse of uh, proceedings, a state misconduct, which by its very nature is rare, um, difficult to discover. Let's not forget that the uh, disclosure that uh, we would normally get, the Stinchcomb disclosure that we would get in a criminal proceeding isn't going to bring us um, the information that we need for a, a, an abuse application like the present one. So, um, but, but I mean, how, how remote, how remote do, you, do you get with this stuff? I mean, you can have certain um, things that arise from solitary confinement. There's sensory deprivation, which seems to be something which is very disturbing to people. Mm -hmm. You can have uh, discomfort. In other words, like an unheated cell in the winter. 
I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a form of physical discomfort, which can be serious. You can have fear, like a menacing pattern of behavior by guards. All of these would be, you know, you can sort of point to them. This is, this is the kind of phenomena which, which my client suffered under. That's different from who sent a memorandum to whom and what conversations took place. And I'm wondering at a certain juncture, does it just get too remote whether the superintendent of the RCMP spoke to the correctional officer on the 15th of October at 3.40 p.m. as opposed to did, did this person, were they allowed to sleep or were they sleep deprived? The, the sleep deprivation to me is where the rubber hits the road. The, the, who sent the, the memorandum or the email is kind of like who cares? Maybe, maybe in your view, who sent the memorandum is the big stuff, but not, not where I sit. Well, they, I think the Court of Appeal has answered this in, in their statement that the allegations have to be reasonable. We're not, we're not asking to go and, and explore areas that are irrelevant, but in my submission, everything that we wanted to explore was reasonable. It was connected to the evidence that we had already presented to the court. And with, to answer your point on those memoranda, they were important to show the degree of integration between the RCMP and the, uh, and the BC Corrections authorities who were, um, who were responsible for the uh, conditions of confinement of our client. So that, that was important to see whether there was bad faith or not. Um, I'd like to just, um, while I, I only have three minutes, I think it's important for me to mention the Nixon case. Um, because this is a case where the Supreme Court of Canada also recognizes that the state actors were in possession of the information regarding a potential abuse, which is similar to the present case. And so, uh, in that case, Madam Justice Sharon found that, um, that uh, the evidentiary sh burden should be shifted to the Crown because they were in possession of the information concerning the abuse. And so we use that thinking to support the correctness of the Court of Appeals observation that the defense allegations are such that they can only be proven through cross-examination. And so um, that's why we're saying that special consideration should apply to applications involving state misconduct because by its very nature it's difficult to uncover. Only the state has this information. And um, it can only be uncovered through cross-examination. And in my submission, we, we had presented enough uh, information uh, to prove to the judge that we should have gone to the next stage, which is an evidentiary hearing. But you know, you can, you can make sweeping statements and then say, uh, I'm, 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 it'll, it'll come out in the cross-examination. That's known as a fishing expedition. Well, I, in my submission, we did not make sweeping statements. We are, are the areas we wanted to explore were uh, connected to the evidence that we had already, or, or the submissions that we had made to the court. It wasn't evidence yet, but you know the evidence that we had in our possession and um, and uh, the in my submission, the trial judge always retains the discretion to control the proceedings and to limit the scope of the cross-examination, to limit the list of the witness, to ensure that, that, um, that the proceedings are efficient. 
But the answer isn't to shut the proceedings down and prevent them from happening in the first place. That's not the proper answer. Um, like I said, these, uh, state misconduct is relatively rare and it is covered up by its nature. So um, in my submission, we should have been permitted to, to go to the next stage. So the final point I wanted to make is that the Crown is asking this court to condone egregious state misconduct and ignore the rule of law. And that flows from paragraph 60 of the Crown's factum. And we say this because the Crown is essentially advocating for a balancing at stage three with incomplete evidence. And the result is that where there are very serious crimes on one side of the balance, the Crown is asking you not to look at the other side and preventing you from having an evidentiary hearing to examine the scope of, of the abuse. And I'd like to conclude with, with what the Court of Appeal said uh, it, with respect to the rule of law at paragraph 423 um, in their judgment. <laughs> And that is uh, at tab 12 of our condensed book. Sorry, tab. Got that mixed up, sorry. Um, tab 5, page Page 28, this court, the court must always retain the ability to dissociate itself from disreputable conduct by staying the proceedings, no matter how serious the offense. Accordingly, there is no category of offense that is beyond the ambit of the abusive process doctrine. Thank you very much. The court will take its 10-minute break.
Court. La Cour. You. Please be seated. Mr. Marklin. Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices, the focus of my submission is on the test for, in particular, a Crown preliminary screening application and on the facts of this case, what should have occurred with this preliminary screening application, whichever test is used. We say that the test should be as simple as asking is the application frivolous? On the second point, we say whatever the standard is, even if it's the slightly higher standard reasonable prospect of success, on what amount to the amazing facts of this case, the defense had to be permitted to lead evidence. What is at issue in this case is deeply unsettling state misconduct. Uh, thankfully, rare double-headed monster, the kind of confluence of facts that would give rise to a public inquiry and cause profound questions on the part of the public about police and how homicide investigators behave in the hardest cases, a case like this of notoriety involving six dead people. The state misconduct here was profound, prolonged, and perverse. It involved sexual exploitation by male police officers of vulnerable young gang-affiliated women for their own personal benefit, a shocking breach of trust, not a, not a one-off, not a one-officer situation, a number of different officers who then engage in fraud, dishonesty, lying, and a cover-up. Knowledge and an unknown extent of the tacit or express agreement up the chain of command in the RCMP. Mr. Martland, you've, you've uh, proposed the, the not frivolous standard, which you seem to acknowledge is lower than the no reasonable prospect of success. First of all, what, what do you say about uh, Cody paragraph 38? And then secondly, um, what do you say is the difference between, you said it's really a question that Justice Kazira asked earlier. Could you elaborate on what the daylight is between the not frivolous standard and the no reasonable prospect of success? Cody at paragraph 38, in fact, as I think was pointed out earlier, has two articulations uh, referring to, and I should look at it, but referring to both uh, the reasonable prospect of success, but then a few lines down, whether the summary of evidence reveals no basis on which the application could, could succeed. The focus of that decision, as I read it, was not on exactly how the standard should be calibrated. So I perfectly accept those lines were given in the context of that discussion. It's a small component of that just judgment. In, in contrast, this appeal very squarely raises the question of what standard should be used. My submission is that with respect to that standard, what you have here 
unfortunately, but really the factums of the parties il and interveners illustrate this, you've got a confusing number of iterations of what the standard should be. So those run the gamut, might assist the court, that's the language out of Bukalic, devoid of merit, air of reality, reasonable prospect of success. I was uh, found myself happily nodding along with Mr. Levitz this morning when I heard him say, is there any basis? And he described the threshold as being very low. Uh, there's reference in one of the factums to manifestement mal fondé et frivole. That's a standard that we uh, would certainly uh, endorse. It amounts to the uh, same thing as a frivolous standard. The what I would say with respect to uh, this situation is that there is a need illustrated by the confusion of the parties in this case and the complexity of what happened here and trying to graft the Vukalic standard in British Columbia on top of the three-part Bebo standard. The screening should be screening. It should be as simple as uh, looking at it and in a brief period of time asking a screening or a vetting question. It should be proportionate to what screening is. And that means rather than getting embroiled in a very complex analysis, simply eyeballing it and saying, is there merit to this? Is this frivolous? And if it's frivolous, it doesn't go forward. And if there's merit to it, if it's not frivolous, it goes forward. Mr. Martland, can I stop you there? The, is it possible to imagine an underlying request that is not frivolous, but that a trial judge legitimately exercises discretion by deciding that they're satisfied that an evidentiary hearing would be of no assistance in determining the matters at issue? Yes. I, 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 would, I would respectfully say that part of the answer would follow in analyzing and asking the question, what does the court need to wrestle with that question? So for and example, so on, the, on the, let's say just hypothetically, on the confinement problem. Yes. If the evidence, if let's say that the trial judge said, well, that's not a, that's not a frivolous matter, but I don't need any more evidence than what I've got. That, what happens then? If it's the case that the trial judge it gets it right, and, and with respect to this learned trial judge, uh, we, we obviously don't say that. But if it's the case that the trial judge can look and say, look, what you've given me through submissions of counsel and perhaps documentary evidence from disclosure, if that photograph is sufficient, I don't need you to play the movie. And there will be any number of cases. Let's step back from abusive process and recall this test would be used in any number of screening applications. Many times there will be sufficient information that counsel can put forward in submissions. They have it through disclosure. It's contained. It can be set out. And in those cases, there's no need for the movie. In contrast, there will be other situations, in particular with the police misconduct vis-a-vis -vis the four officers on a direct indictment. That is information very much attainable if they're under subpoena and under cross-examination and simply unavailable in the real world when they're facing charges. I understand your point. So if you'll allow me, Chief Justice, just one more question. It almost sounds like there's, there's two steps or cascading steps. The, fr the frivolous issue is not going to end the inquiry, right? It's, there's going to be that, I mean, just Chief Justice McEachern even 
spoke to this idea of whether an evidentiary hearing would, would be of assistance. So, so it's almost like there's a second level inquiry. Is that a, a second yes. prong of the inquiry? Yes, Justice, I agree with it, and there's probably better ways of expressing it, but it seems to me one of the questions is a question of process. What do we need, what does the court, the trial court, need to have to deal with the question? And then secondly, assuming that the court has that sufficient evidence or submissions of counsel, depending on the case, is then to move on to apply the standard. So on the standard, we're advocating for not frivolous. But on the question of what information was available, the fundamental problem we identify here was that the trial court was put in a position of trying to compare two things that couldn't be compared in any fair way. And that arose in one level on stage one of Babos, but secondly, on and especially on stage three, because with when you look at what evidence was available on stage three, the Crown had many months of evidence that was the whole crown case establishing guilt on these murder charges and on the other side of the ledger what you have is defense lawyers who are stuck with the bits that emerge through disclosure with officers who uh, are under direct indictment and are not saying a thing but there's a, a serious basis and the court of appeal reason set this out in describing uh, things that have happened since this trial uh, and a serious basis to expect that under compulsion of a subpoena, those officers and others would have been required to, and more than that, would have been quite happy to come out swinging and to say, well, I wasn't the only one. What we know one of them would have said, the handler for the witness KM, a central witness, did the same thing. We don't know quite what that means. We, we expect very much that the uh, corruption that was plain on the face of it for these four officers would have gone not just out to fellow officers, but up the chain of command. Yeah. Now, there's, the there's two situations here, and I'm going to come back to my distinction. One is an inconsequential uh, allegation. And I'm going to give you one that I must say I still find amusing. There was a citizen of the French Republic who was uh, incarcerated and convicted and, and, and said, look, you know, the, the, I was treated in a very unfair manner. I was, I was fed on a regular basis Kentucky Fried Chicken. This, this is just unacceptable. Most folks back home would figure they hit the jackpot. <laughs> so I, I, would, I put that under the un, inconsequential category. The other one is the fishing expedition category. I sat in a, uh, a, a jury case. It was the third trial. There were six complainants and I can't even remember how many counts there were. And there, this had gone on for years and years and years. And the, and the trial was dreadful because defense counsel uh, just went on and on. And I could, it didn't happen, but I can imagine a stay proceeding in which defense counsel said, I'm sure there's been collusion here and I'm gonna find it. And, and all of the, all of the uh, complainants sort of go back in the witness box and all of the, the police um, officers who've been involved over many years, I all go back in the witness box. And, and it's just trying to find something to say that there was misconduct. I mean, cannot the trial judge say, look, you, you haven't given me, you've made a strong allegation of collusion, 
but there's nothing, there's no, there's no proper basis for it, and I'm just not going to sit here for weeks and weeks while you put everybody back in the box and, and try to find an occasion when perhaps they, I don't know, talked about the testimony that was going to be given. Yes, I, I appreciate it. I won't, I won't start into opinion evidence about Kentucky Fried Chicken. I don't know that'll be very helpful. But with respect to the question of how the judge deals with that, um, there, there should be situations where the judge can look and say, look, you're trying to say that the prime minister directed the police to do that. You're making things up. There's nothing in the evidence to point to that or support that. And unless you can give me more, I'm not going to engage. But in a situation such as this, you've got the findings that are there, if uh, limited, but the findings that are there based on what council was able to put forward. This isn't made up stuff. It's not speculation. It's not a fishing expedition. We don't call trials fishing expeditions. This is amazing misconduct, a separate special prosecutor uh, indictment of four police officers. It is the sort of set of facts that could have given rise to a public inquiry. Our respectful submission is that in the face of that sort of set of facts, one would hope that the administration of justice would fearlessly look in to the cave and ask, what happened here? These, there's clearly is police corruption in a murder case and on this investigation. Mr. Martland, can I, can I pull you back? I'm sorry, from the facts of this case to, to analytical issues regarding the framework. I'd be grateful to hear from you on the difference, if any, between the standard for summary dismissal at the first stage, that is before the voir dire, deciding whether we're going to hold a voir dire, and then at the second stage during the voir dire. Is it the same threshold? Maybe not if you read Cody. Should it be the same threshold? I, I'd, I'd be grateful to hear from you on that. Yes, and, and I, I think I, as I think back on it, I don't think I answered that question properly the first time. So we quite agree with what the Ontario Attorney General has put forward. It is not an all or nothing proposition. The trial judge in uh, hearing a screening application should be asking the question, is this frivolous? And assuming, and that should be as simple as screening, for example, the reason I'm not physically in the courtroom, I couldn't answer the screening questions about cold symptoms, and I'm in a hotel room. Screening should be as simple as that. And that screening should be, is it frivolous? Assuming that the application overcomes that standard, it moves into uh, an application where uh, in this situation the defense is putting forward evidence in support of a remedy. And in that context, the trial judge retains all of the trial management powers to manage the process and uh, in my respectful submission certainly can ask, has this become frivolous, but can ask variations on that. Has this become a fishing expedition? Has it become clear that there isn't uh, that what you expected would be there in the evidence isn't there and this is not a useful expenditure of the court's time and therefore I'm going to either curtail or direct that you proffer evidence on this uh, in short order uh, or simply close it down. So, so, so does, that mean, does that mean it's the same threshold then? At, at well, our, in my respectful submission, the not, no, I, I, I would answer it this way. Um, the not frivolous standard is what we say should apply 
for the screening application. Right. In the course of trial management, it's open to the court in a case-by-case -case basis to ask a different question. Is this appropriate and useful and responsible? Is it, is it uh, continue to be necessary and appropriate to hold this hearing? All right, so Justice Karagatsanis has a last question for you because your time is up. My Thank question you. is um, how detailed do the facts and the evidence to be relied on need to be? Um, might you need an affidavit and how do you determine when you need actual evidence to back up uh, counsel's statement? of facts and the evidence they intend to rely on? There's no one answer in my respectful submission. In many cases, if you go back to the Vukalic decision, which in British Columbia has become a verb, in other words, I got Vukalic instead of a case name. But the Vukalic talks about, in part, is trying to avoid a situation where counsel have to uh, head into the difficulty of having an accused person swear an affidavit or put forward evidence and rather can stand up, much as happens at bail and sentencing hearings, and say this is what it's about. Um, I don't know that there's a single answer there as to whether it needs to be an affidavit versus live witnesses. Thank you very much. Thank you. Scott Hutchison. Uh, thank you, uh, Chief Justice. Uh, while a summary dismissal regime achieves legitimate uh, process goals, any scheme uh, that you create has to be a modest one. Uh, the Criminal Lawyers Association accepts certainly that the trial management power includes the ability to establish a threshold, um, but in our submission, it has to be similar to the threshold that's used in other contexts and calibrated in a way that is intended to weed out only applications or motions which have no reasonable prospect of success. Uh, that's, in, in my submission, really the same as saying weeding out applications that are frivolous. Uh, that test I'm going to suggest to you uh, should be essentially the same as the test that's applied in a pleadings motion in a civil case. In order to strike out a pleading in a civil case, the court has to be satisfied that it's plain and obvious that the pleaded claim cannot succeed. That's a test that's known in every jurisdiction in this country as a threshold uh, to be applied before a civil claim is allowed to move forward. And the decision of this court in Carey and Hunt offers uh, important direction that I'm going to suggest to you is, in fact, uh, the real reason why you have so many defense lawyers here trying to ensure that this test is calibrated appropriately. Uh, Mr. Hutchison. Uh, in, in paragraph 36, uh, uh, Hunt and Carey reminds us that, that neither the length and complexity of the issues, the novelty of the cause of action, nor the potential for the defendant to present a strong defense should prevent the plaintiff from proceeding with his or her case. Only if the action is certain to fail because it contains a radical defect should the relevant portions of a plaintiff's claim be struck. And it, again, we've heard repeated reference to judicial economy as the justification for uh, rules associated with uh, these thresholds. Uh, in, in my submission, it would be strange if a civil litigant advancing a private claim uh, could have access to those court resources to, not, to litigate a novel claim 
on a lower threshold than the one that was going to be applied to uh, a criminal defendant seeking to uh, make full answer in defense to a criminal charge. Mr. Hutchison, and, and can I, I ask you? Say, I, I see you there, Justice Kerkatana, yes. sorry. Can I ask you a question? I'll, I'll be a little more blunt than I was with um, Mr. Martland. Um, the phrase, I think, going back to Vukulich, was that you have to set out, defense counsel should set out the grounds with reasonable particularity. When, if ever, is it appropriate to have to lead evidence, or if you, by definition, once you're leaving evidence, you're into some kind of a hearing on the merits? Yeah, I, I think the answer to that question is, is to be found uh, in Vukulich itself, which talks about this as being um, essentially uh, a, a pleading uh, standard and the requirement for notice. Uh, and of course, you know, the DPP makes the point that uh, you need to have a reasonably precise and, and pleaded claim. That's what gets you in the door. If your claim is one that could potentially uh, uh, get over this threshold, this plain and obvious threshold, then uh, in my respectful submission, it's entirely appropriate to enter into an evidentiary hearing. And, and to speak to the issue that was uh, raised in some of the earlier questions, this sort of two-stage process, where the first stage is, should we have a hearing? And then the second stage is, what does that hearing look like? Uh, certainly, once the hearing begins, the trial judge uh, or the judge at first instance retains the authority to control how that hearing unfolds and con continues to be able to say, uh, at, at any point that, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Hutchison, you told me I was going to hear about uh, X, Y, and Z, and I'm now looking at it, and, you know, none of the evidence you're calling seems to support what you were saying. Um, give me your, give it your best shot, otherwise I'm going to uh, uh, close this down or start limiting your ability to continue to cross-examine the witnesses. The, the rule can't be made realistically more demanding than that, otherwise what you see is this sort of slide into summary judgment. Um, and that's the other lesson from Hunt and Carey is to take care that what is essentially meant to be um, a, a threshold that is testing the allegations and whether they could ever um, support the uh, relief sought doesn't turn into a summary judgment motion because that's essentially what's happened in uh, uh, in, in Vuklitsch uh, and the way it's been applied in British Columbia, even the British Columbia Court of Appeal says it's turned into, it's turned from a pleadings motion into a summary judgment motion. And, and uh, in my respectful submission, that's not where uh, the, the court should be taking us in respect of this threshold. Thank you very much. Uh, Chief, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Matthew and Nattinson. Thank you, Chief Justice. Members of the court, I have uh, three points that I wish to make and then a solution which I wish to offer to the third point. Um, the first point is that the court cannot sacrifice trial fairness at, on the altar of efficiency. And when I say trial fairness, I include the right to make full answer and defense. The second point is if the Vukulich standard is properly set at the non-frivolous stage, which is what is advocated by CDAS, then there is actually not a tension between fairness and efficiency because trial fairness is not enhanced by bringing frivolous motions, nor does the right to make full answer and defense include the ability to advance frivolous motions. 
So efficiency is satisfied, but fairness is not. And that leads me to um, a question that Justice Brown, you asked one of my friends and also Justice Damal uh, asked a similar question after the break. And that is what to do about paragraph 38 in Cody. And I would respectfully submit that there has to be a little refining in terms of what the court said there. The court in Cody was looking at the issue from 10,000 feet in terms of the importance of efficiency, but the court is now squarely looking at the test to be applied, and I would respectfully submit that some slight modification is in order. And that leads to, uh, Justice Brown, your question that you asked my friend Mr. Martland a second ago about is the non-frivolous standard, if that's the correct standard, at the threshold, the same one that applies throughout the hearing? In other words, does it get revisited at the same level? And I would respectfully submit that it does stay the same because to introduce two separate standards, one at the threshold and one in the middle of the hearing, would potentially introduce uncertainty and would encourage the Crown to repeatedly take kicks at the Vukalic can. Um, and that is informed, that submission is informed by how Vukalic has actually played out in British Columbia, which is over aggressive overuse by the Crown. Um, is there any difference between a standard of no reasonable prospect of success and a standard of a claim that is arguable uh, and a standard of a claim that is uh, is not frivolous seems to me that they are all um, they all have a strong family resemblance and maybe may amount to different ways of saying the same thing and perhaps the least pejorative uh, word might be uh, whether something is arguable because if something is arguable it seems to me that perhaps that should be a basis to proceed. Um, uh, Justice Jamal, uh, my submission is that there is a difference between those standards. Um, it may be a question of degree, but the, the way that I uh, conceive of this is non-frivolous um, is where full answer and defense is not engaged. It's at that low standard that this is a waste of time. But the second you start getting into reasonable prospect of success, then you get into weighing of the merits. And that is where full answer and defense potentially gets engaged because potentially meritorious arguments can get shut down at the front end. So in my submission, it does make a difference. They, they, the standards may be close, but they are not identical in my submission. In support of Justice Jamal's question, uh, Surely, when you decide something is frivolous, you are, what was your expression, doing a little bit of weighing of the merits and deciding it's a waste of time. I mean, we're pretty darn close to the two. And I'm wondering if you can think of an example to help us see the difference as opposed to just stating it. Well, I'd, I'd, I'm sorry to answer your question with a question, but, but I'll just come back to, to a comment that Justice Martin said earlier. Um, uh, made earlier, and that was about that in the ITO context, in the Garofoli context, it's a very distinct context, and that's why we have the test in that context. Um, if you excise everything, is there still enough? That's a very different test than, for example, abuse of process. 
and so i'm sorry if that's not a tangible example on the fly it just is because here but in my respectful submission the distinction between those two can be borne out by the different contexts the different contexts from which they've emerged thank you very much mr johnson um thank you good morning perhaps i will um begin by trying to answer the last question that was asked in terms of an example um, of something that's um, arguable, um, but may appear closer to frivolous from an actual case. Um, that being one where, as jurisprudence typically exists, uh, the police do not require a reason to pull somebody over. But a charter notice filed alleging arbitrary detention by a traffic stop. The evidence then comes out that the police had improper motives in doing the traffic stop. Uh, and although the argument was dismissed at trial, it then succeeded on appeal and the matter was stayed. So just because upon reading a notice, a matter might seem to have a low prospect of success does not necessarily mean it does have a low prospect of success once you get into the hearing and flush out the evidence. Uh, as counsel accustomed to practicing under the Dwernachuk regime in Alberta, uh, it was rather shocking to discover this practice of Vukulich hearings as it, I understand it exists in British Columbia. I think the Alberta approach has shown that a resort to a Vukulich type hearing is rarely, if ever, necessary. Uh, both Dwernachuk and Vukulich are actually not that different in terms of their wording and what I think they set out to accomplish, but how they've come to be applied uh, is a night and day difference. And in more than one case, or in a case cited more than once uh, by the other parties, I think there's a line that if Chief Justice McEachern was around to see how Vukulich is being applied today, he would probably be quite disappointed. But perhaps, perhaps the best approach is one of belts and suspenders rather than one or the other. I think the Alberta approach is provide a charter notice ahead of time, set out the charter sections relied upon and the manner in which the rights alleged to have been breached. A summary of the evidence should be set out, which supports the breach, set out in summary form. The notice should set out a summary of the argument and any jurisprudence relied on, and then the applicant should be asked to set out the remedy requested. And unless it is clearly without merit, in other words, the evidence alleged taken at its highest could not establish a breach, the accused should at least have a right to an evidentiary hearing. That may be an abbreviated evidentiary hearing by trial judges taking control of the, their courtrooms and their proceedings. For example, a trial judge saying, from looking at your charter notice, it would appear that a possible weakness in your argument is standing. Perhaps you could start off this voir dire by giving me submissions or evidence on why you believe you have standing. If at the conclusion of that, the trial judge says, is that all you have? I find you do not have standing. You've at least had a hearing on the merits you've at least got a ruling on the merits, 
which then preserves the right to appeal the decision to dismiss the charter application, as opposed to simply saying what happened here. We're going to have a hearing on whether you can have a hearing and then no, you can't have a hearing at all. And in my submission, it is very important to the development of the charter and the protection that the charter is supposed to grant that people whose charter rights have possibly been breached get evidentiary hearings. Well, I'm going to give you uh, a, a perhaps a, an anomalous example, but I don't think a fanciful one. And I'm going to jump in a time machine and dredge up this example when the Orange Order was quite important in Ontario and when Toronto was run by Presbyterians, so it is alleged. And so Seamus O'Banion, a, 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 a person of Irish descent, is, is convicted. And his counsel after the conviction says, I want to demonstrate that the Orange Order is, 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 is distorting the uh, administration of justice in Toronto and discriminating against Irishmen. And, and so, you know, then, then you have this hearing about, well, what's the status of the Orange Order? How many, how many of the officers on the Metropolitan Police Force are, are, you know, members of the Orange Order? And what's the pattern of arrests and convictions against persons of Irish descent? And it just goes into this uh, almost a, 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 an, in, an investigation into the, the, the criminal justice system. I mean, can that kind of thing be justified? I mean, I can conceive of counsel saying, um, I'm going to put the whole system on trial here. That's my purpose. And, uh, and let's go. And, 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 and can the judge not say, no, 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 we're not here for that? Uh, I think that's correct. That my answer, if I was the trial judge, would be, well, we just sat through this trial. You had the opportunity to cross-examine witnesses. You had the opportunity to present your case. You didn't present any evidence of that. You're now proposing to raise something not in evidence based only on a notice, which would appear to take as though it's going to take an inordinate amount of time. I think in rare cases, yes, the judge can say, um, based on the record before me and what you've said, uh, you have little or no hope of establishing a breach in those circumstances. But in the vast majority of cases, it is my submission that for charter protected rights to be relevant and not just broad statements of principle, these cases need to be litigated and decided on their merits. Thank you. And that only where it appears uh, there's no hope of success should be Thank you very much. declined to have a hearing. Thank you. Your time is up. Thank you. Tony Persana. Thank you, uh, Chief Justice. Time permitting, I wish to make three points on behalf of the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia. Firstly, we submit that there is a correlative, if not causative, relationship between how accessible vordiers remain in criminal cases and the ability of lawyers and the courts to contribute to the continuing evolution of the charter. In other words, the living tree can only thrive if continually fed with important vordiers. It is the fuel of charter innovation. Stifling the ability of litigants to raise novel issues, which by their very nature will usually come up against binding or persuasive authority, raises the real prospect that charter litigation will stagnate. This court's jurisprudence is rife with examples 
which at the trial level, a case or issue would have seemed inconsistent with existing case law, but which contributed significantly to the evolution of the charter. Vu, Bedford, Carter, there are other examples abound. Uh, we say the voir dire for defense counsel is the primary mechanism through which a record is created. It is usually only through this vehicle that modern or unique applications of the law can be revealed. It is rarely the case indeed that a police officer's notebook or reports speak to the broader societal issues that may be at play in any given case, particularly for marginalized accused. It is only through examination that counsel can develop a record of systemic breaches, for example. Uh, how often is it do you have a case like this one where there is a police investigation of a police investigation? That is indeed often the role of defense counsel in a way to determine whether the police had conducted themselves appropriately because that won't be revealed on the face of the records provided to defense counsel. So that is our first point. Our second point deals with the standard and the debate that has been going on about frivolous and um, no reasonable prospect of success. Our point in this regard is straightforward. Uh, we say that the standard should reflect what we expect a Vukulic hearing to look like. If we expect it to be a streamlined process based on the submissions of counsel on a limited factual record, with the idea of being that it be a quick screening, it should be a very low standard indeed, and we support the articulation of not frivolous. And that's because we do not want the fear of missing out to make the process inefficient. And you start to see that in British Columbia and the Court of Appeal talked about this in this very case. You see these massive application records with dozens and dozens of authorities in the hopes that you will not miss out on the voir dire uh, because the standard is being articulated in a higher way than perhaps it should be. And so we say for the standard to work in the way that it's uh, intended to work, it should be a low standard. And indeed on this point, I point the court uh, to its um, uh, direction or guidance at paragraph 44 of the Olin decision. Uh, and in that decision, the court made clear that uh, grading schemes of prospect of success or moderate prospect of success were unhelpful and amounted to little more than wordsmithing, opting instead for the standard of not frivolous. And we support that contention. It makes sense to us. It addresses some of the practical concerns that we are seeing every day in British Columbia because this practice has become so widespread. I wonder if there's a relationship, a logical relationship between there being a low standard and according a trial judge considerable latitude in terms of trial management. In other words, okay, make your case, but then uh, if, if there's a low standard, make your case, we have the voir dire, there's a corresponding um, breadth of latitude for the, for the judge to say, well, look, you're just wasting everybody's time. This is over. We accept that trial judges are well positioned to identify conspiratorial or frivolous applications. There is a gut feeling to some of this that is at play that I think trial judges are well situated to understand and to apply. Um, and it's this eyeballing that Mr. Martland talked about that I think is the, the standard at which we want this to be evaluated, not some in-depth analysis of the merits of the application, because all you are doing is repeating yourself. It is not uncommon in this province to have a Vukulic hearing take three days and the application itself to take one day. It's not uncommon in this uh, province to see um, uh, efforts to Vukulic the Vukulic because they're becoming so unwieldy. I've done that before, a four-day Vukulic. Uh, in order to uh, uh, kibosh a three-day hearing. The, this is the height of inefficiency, uh, and it's ironic because the entire tool was developed to increase efficiency. 
But in the name of Jordan, in the name of 11b and expediency, we are losing our way to some degree and, and uh, curtailing important applications in, in, the, in the name of expediency, but not in actual fact. Uh, thank you, Chief Justice. Those thank are you the very questions. much. Thank you. Mr. Uh, Madison. Chief Justice, Justices, the CCLA submits that an abusive process application should not be summarily dismissed unless the court has determined that an evidentiary hearing cannot assist in adjudicating the claim fairly and reliably. The focus should be on whether an evidentiary hearing can assist. This standard allows for frivolous claims and fishing expeditions to be weeded out while maintaining critical rule of law principles, including access to justice. This test that we are proposing fits with any charter application, but our brief submissions are focused on abusive process. There are particular challenges with abusive process that weigh heavily in favor of allowing evidentiary hearings. Three challenges we wish to underscore are the diverse range of circumstances in which abuse arises, the difficulties associated with uncovering and presenting evidence of abuse, and third, the access to justice concern. First challenge, abuse arises in diverse circumstances. This is evident from the multiplicity of cases in which abuse has been found. This diversity of circumstances is why this court held in O'Connor that the doctrine of abuse of process along with its section seven counterpart must be flexible. In O'Connor, Justice Leroy Dubay, speaking specifically about the residual category, emphasized that it must address a panoply of diverse and sometimes unforeseeable circumstances. Abusive process applications often arise in circumstances that have never been examined before or have only been inadequately examined before. So the novelty is not just around a new question of law. Rather, it's about facts and issues not previously examined and which therefore uh, require examination to reach fair and uh, reliable results. The second challenge, evidence of abuse is difficult to uncover and present even when the abuse is serious and systemic. This is a point uh, powerfully made by uh, the respondents and, and other of the in interveners. It cannot be assumed that Stinchcomb disclosure is going to reveal evidence of abuse. Undocumented practices will not be reflected. Serious abuse may be concealed deliberately. Its nature and extent may be hidden or obfuscated. And this court has held outside of the abuse context even when disclosure provides some evidence relevant to a defense motion where that, de that, that disclosure gives the basis, still the threshold for the motion to proceed is low. And I'm referring in particular to Peary's and Lysing, where this court considered the leave requirement for defense uh, permission to cross-examine on a, a affidavit sworn in support of a wiretap authorization. In that context, the court emphasized that an accused is entitled to full disclosure, so they don't show up empty-handed at the application. And however, nevertheless, the court emphasized that the threshold in that context is still low, only requiring that the defense show a reasonable likelihood that the cross-examination will elicit testimony probative value on the issues under consideration. 
In the abuse context, the reality that evidence of abuse is not likely found in disclosure and is generally difficult to draw out, we submit reinforces the need for evidentiary hearings. Mr. Mr. Matheson, could I ask you, it, it, it comes out in your factum quite strongly. You haven't mentioned it, but I guess it underlies some of your, 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 um, your points. The high onus on the crown that you, that you insist upon in your, in your factum um, consistent with the right of the accused to seek remedies. How does this, this articulation of the summary dismissal process um, proceed where the court exercises case management powers on its own motion? Is this, is this, does this change any of the dynamic? It, the, the test would be the same. The, the assessment is whether or not an evidentiary hearing will assist. And if it's the Crown who's moving, they must show that it will not assist. If the court is considering that on its own initiative, it remains the same analysis. And really, the, the goal, and I think there's a lot of alignment, is uh, on, on the side of the respondents and many of the interveners, is the goal is to avoid frivolous applications and fishing expeditions, which are concepts well familiar to the courts. And so in my respectful submission, the answer to your question is that it's the same standard, whether the Crown is moving or the court is um, acting on its own initiative. Um, with my time up, I will uh, rely on uh, a written submission with respect to the third uh, consideration in the abuse context, which is access to justice for all yep. types Thank of accused. Thank you very much. Any reply, Mr. Levitz? I want to reply to some of the questions and, and the concepts that, that were raised in the last little while, but, but I just want to put them in context of this case, because I'm here to argue that this court should allow the appeal on the basis of the circumstances of this case, of the, of the serious nature of the crime, the serious nature of the misconduct, the steps taken to dissociate the system, the courts, from the misconduct, and why a, a stay of proceeding is, is not in the cards in this particular case. Justice Cussare, you asked for an example of what falls somewhere between frivolous and no prospect of success. And I'll give you an example on this case. In our respectful submission, there's no question that the abusive, pro, the, the misconduct that's led here that the judge found uh, was not frivolous. She found it not to be so in the sense she found it to be an abusive process. However, we're, we're here dealing with um, safe proceedings, babos, and the issue is whether or not the, these uh, respondents have any basis um, to get a stay of proceedings. And we say when you compare that to the abuse, which we say is clearly not frivolous, but with respect to the, um, the, the remedy, that they're certainly, in our respectful submission, they have no reasonable prospect of success, uh, mainly because, obviously, the seriousness nature of the offenses, but also when you consider the misconduct, the court has already, and the system has already dissociated itself from that misconduct, and the reason why one would, a court were grant to stay is in order to disassociate from the misconduct, and that's already occurred here, and I'll get into that in more detail when we get into the closed hearing. Um, I think this was a question that was raised earlier about, um, you know, what does it mean to supplement the findings on stage one to inform on stage three? I think that was a question 
that came from you, Justice Karakastanis. And it seemed that what came out is, well, sure, you've established what you need to establish under stage one, but there could be more information that you need, that you need an evidentiary hearing in order to um, have all, all the necessary information to give to the judge to do the balancing. But in my respectful submission, and, and that could be the case, depending on the circumstances, but let's talk about this particular case. In this particular case, as I've said, the court found, at least with respect to the open, um, that the judge had everything. She took the allegations at its highest. And, and, and as I read the court's decision, taking that and what the amici allege, which we will argue there was no basis, that's why they were entitled to an evidentiary hearing. So my respectful submission, if you're with us later on uh, in the closed hearing, and, and there's no basis for the amici hearing, then the judge had everything she needed. There was no factual controversies. The respondents were unable to provide her with any other facts which they said would need to be resolved at an evidentiary hearing which she already had not accepted, which they would need uh, for the balancing. And Justice Jamel, you made a point that um, the public needs to know the extent of the misconduct. And my respectful submission, obviously just referring to the allegations in the open hearing, the public has that information. It's in the judge's open ruling, and she accepted the allegations. She, she set out in great detail the misconduct with respect to the conditions of confinement, for example. She set out in great deal the misconduct with respect, for example, the, the way the investigators were dealing with witnesses. It's in the ruling. The public would see why, um, what that misconduct was, and, and, and would see why the judge um, exercised her discretion uh, and, and rejecting an evidentiary hearing because it there was no point of it, if I can use that word. And finally, I want to just talk about process, which has come up a lot. And I just want to set out what occurred here, because there's some debate about, well, what do you do, Vukulich, compared to, you know, what steps do you take? Well, what the judge did here, in my respectful submission, was she, um, there was a hearing, it was a six-day hearing, and as Vukulich says, the way the um, applicants, um, can provide the judge with information through submissions, through affidavits, however really they want. And the, and the respondents did that here, through, through their, basically through the allegations that they made. And the judge accepted at the highest. And the, so the issue was not so much whether or not there was to be a hearing. There was a hearing. The issue that the judge had to determine is whether or not there ought to be an evidentiary hearing. And she concluded, based on all the information that she had, and all the information that was provided to her, and there was nothing more to be provided, that they ought not to have gotten that, that evidentiary hearing because it didn't meet the Vuklitch test. In my respectful submission, that was her job to do. And she exercised her discretion um, reasonably and correctly, and, and she ought not to have been. Um, all right. Uh, one last question. Your, your colleague mentioned paragraphs 405, 409, 410 of the Court of Appeal. And challenged your view that the Court of Appeal was mistaken. And I wonder if you have an answer to that. Y yes, um, and, I, and I appreciate that because I didn't have a chance to, to deal with it in my open. The point that we make on the, on the Babos um, stage three balancing issue is we say the Court of Appeal said that if a judge on a summary hearing 
finds, as this judge did, that um, there was an abuse process under stage one, and finds that um, under stage two there's no alternate remedy but a stay of proceedings, we say that the Court of Appeal then said, well, that's fine, that's enough, she ought not consider stage three, it ought to go to an evidentiary hearing to consider the balancing. When you look at the issues that were before the Court of Appeal, this is to support our interpretation, particularly paragraph 377. In paragraph 377, the court sets out what the issues were before them. And the court says, um, uh, sets out what the, the now respondents, what, what their position was. And in the second sentence, in paragraph 377, the Court of Appeal says that they, the now respondents, submit that an evidentiary hearing should follow in any circumstance where the accused shows a basis for demonstrating that the impugned conduct is offensive to society notions of fair play and decency. And then they give the reason why. That's stage one. That's stage one. So the, the, the issue that was before the Court of Appeal was, okay, if we, the respondents, establish stage one, their position is we automatically get a, a full evidentiary hearing uh, so that we can uh, flush out the balancing on stage three. That was the point. So when you go to paragraph 409, and I think that is the paragraph that, that supports our, um, our, our submission, the court says this, here the circumstances were not so clear. In our view, the judge's determination that applications stood to be resolved by balancing the factors of stage three supports the conclusion that the low vucalage was met. And it's the next sentence that I, I would um, underline. By this point, the judge had determined that stages one and two of the Babos test were made out on the face of the proposed uh, defense application, namely that the policeman's conduct would shock the community's conscience and or was offenses offensive to society notions of fair play and decency, the integrity of the justice system would be prejudiced by continuing the proceedings, and no remedy short of a stay was capable of addressing the prejudice. In other words, they established stages one and two. And then they go on to say clearly these applications were not frivolous. So in my submission, the Court of Appeal is, is saying two things. One is they're saying, well, the amici has, has um, convinced us that there's a, there's a basis <coughs> for a theory, which we'll talk about shortly. And so, therefore, there's a factual controversy that needs to be resolved at an evidentiary hearing. And they're also saying, in, what, in, in, the, and in dealing with the now respondent's uh, position, they're all saying, well, you know, on, a, um, on an abusive process, if you've met stages one and two, then you get an evidentiary hearing in stage three. Our point is, if, there's no, if the judge is taking the allegations as the highest as she did, she accepted all the facts, there are no factual controversies. The respondents here have not been able to convince her that there's anything new that will be led on an evidentiary hearing. Then there's no, there has been a hearing, but there's no basis, there's no point to get an evidentiary hearing. And in the context of Cody, this would be a waste of judicial resources and would only exacerbate right. delay. Thank Your you. Time is up. Thank, Thank you very much. The court will take a 20 minutes break to prepare for the in-camera hearing.